from APM American Public Media. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. The debate over how to improve the nation's public schools often centers on teachers, how important they are, how there aren't enough good ones, and why they aren't better paid or better trained or better evaluated. Well, none of this is new. Teaching has always been a contentious profession in the United States, a fact that author Dana Goldstein explores in her new book, The Teacher Wars. The book vividly recounts nearly 200 years of public school history and exposes the roots of today's controversies about teaching. Education correspondent Emily Hanford talked to Goldstein about what she learned writing the book. This week's podcast is part one of that interview. Hanford began by asking about the book's subtitle, A History of America's Most Embattled Profession. Well, I first started looking at this sense of controversy or embattlement over teaching around 2009 when President Obama came into the office. And there was a great crisis with the recession, and I noticed more and more that public school teachers were getting talked about as one of the big solutions, that teachers were going to be responsible for closing these um, inequality gaps, these socioeconomic gaps that we were so concerned about as a nation. And the expectations on teachers were so high, and it was the only profession that President Obama thought to mention in his State of the Union address, saying, we're going to stop making excuses for bad teachers. You know, no mention of bad police officers, social workers, all these other professions that are also paid for with tax dollars. And what I really discovered in the book is that what I thought was a new crisis, a new sense of controversy, a new sense of being embattled that public school teachers had, in fact, dated back to the early 19th century, that there's always been this contention in American politics that if we can only replace the bad teachers with a new, younger, better set, we can solve all our educational woes. And then beyond that, we can also solve our macroeconomic problems. And this is a very big idea in American history that is about 200 years old. What's so interesting is one of the reasons that teaching is so embattled, as you just said, is that it's seen as so important. And yet what you show in your book is that over 200 years of history, what is revealed is that teaching is and pretty much always has been a very low status profession in the United States. The question is, uh, how did it become, was it always a low status profession? How did it become a low status profession? And, and what impact has that had over time? So if we look back at 1800, about 90% of teachers in schools are male which really surprises people to learn because, of course, today 76% of teachers are female. And with a few exceptions, the Great Depression, the Vietnam War, most teachers have been female over time. So this demographic profile has been consistent. Back in the early 19th century, teaching in a school, as opposed to, say, being a governess or a tutor for a wealthy person's children within a home, teaching in a school was low status. And it was something that a young man might do saving up to go to study to be a lawyer or doctor, and um, sort of a temporary career. And Horace Mann, who's the founder of the Common Schools Movement, he describes the sort of tutor who helped him prepare for his admissions exam to Brown University as this sort of inebriated, drunken, like disgusting guy who can't find work in any other field. And when this young woman comes to town to teach in the one-room schoolhouse um, in the small rural Massachusetts town where he grows up, his eyes are opened. You know, he is so impressed with this female teacher who he has as a child. And really what happens is that teaching becomes defined as women's work. There's the idea that it would be 
a high status profession for women. For men, it wasn't going to be high status because men had all these other options. But in the 19th century, at least, women didn't really have any other choices if they wanted to have a public life out in the community with a civic sense of purpose. And so, that, so bringing women into the profession, the hope reformers have is not only women are cheap, which they're quite explicit about, you can pay them half as much, but it's a way to increase the job status because smart women will want to do this in a way that it's not quite as attractive to a man who can be an attorney, for example. And what's interesting, of course, you mentioned that women are cheap. So one of the things that was going on is that as we decided in this country that all kids should get an education, which was not the idea necessarily at first, we suddenly needed more teachers. And, oh, the solution is, well, we can get women and they won't be as expensive, so now we can educate all kids, right? Right. So from about 1830 through the 1870s, states one by one are making education compulsory. And what that means is that through about what we would consider middle school today, parents have to send their kids to school. You don't have a choice. You've got to provide for your kids' education, and the government's going to guarantee that that's free for you. So taxes are about as unpopular back then as they are now. So policymakers like Mann, they had this progressive belief in public education, but they had to balance that with conservative calls to keep taxes low. And women solved that problem because you could pay them so much less. One of the other things that you show is, as women became teachers, another thing that got associated with teaching is, is less of a profession and more of a mission or more of a, a moral kind of a job. So talk about that. What was going on? Well, the idea, which was really promoted by Catherine Beecher, who's Harriet Beecher Stowe's sister, um, is that women are biologically suited to spending time with children. She saw teaching as mothering, but outside the home. So the mother deals with children in the home, and the teacher deals with children in the school. And in particular, she and Horace Mann, in partnership, depict the female teacher as caring for the child's moral education. It's not so much about a rigorous academic curriculum as about making sure um, this child is morally developed in a Protestant sense. And these are people who grow up with a very strong Calvinist upbringing. And although they have themselves more liberal beliefs, they're very attached to the idea of America as a Protestant nation. One of the things that's concerning them in the 19th century is Catholic immigration. They want to make sure that female Protestant teachers are giving these Catholic immigrant kids the right values. And we see some Catholic intellectuals at the time becoming extremely uncomfortable with this idea of the missionary teacher. Are you expecting teachers to counterbalance or outweigh what I want my kids to know as a parent? And this parent-teacher tension is something, again, we see throughout history. One of the things you show in the book is that going way back, you can see that there never developed a good systematic way to train teachers in the United States. And that that is different than what was happening in other countries. So how, how and why was it different in the United States? Number one, that women were such a predominant part of the workforce. And number two, that there really wasn't a system to train them to teach well. So Horace Mann establishes the first normal schools, which are teacher training academies in Massachusetts. Some of them in Massachusetts are really quite wonderful. Um, the teachers who are in training have a master teacher teaching them skills, and then they spend time in a kind of practice classroom actually doing real lessons. But as this idea gets implemented across the country in many states that had even less tax dollars to spend than Massachusetts did, you see it degrade. And the typical normal school really has very little actual teaching of children involved, so there's very little practical chance to practice your skills. 
and it's accepting girls out of the sixth or seventh grade. And that is really shocking to think about. So it's taking girls who might be 13 years old and training them for one or two years, and then they're going right back into the primary schools to teach as young teenagers. And they had not really been adequately prepared for the task. Sometimes they were bringing their own kids with them to work. Um, this was factory level wages. This was something that women did to scrape by, to help out because the husband was a subsistence farmer or they were unmarried or they were widowed at 18 with two children, which was not unusual back then. But then starting in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there starts to be some anxiety about the quality of teachers. So tell me about that, and, and then I want to go to today, because I think there's a lot of what was talked about then that we're talking about in exactly the same way today. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful question. And um, Charles William Eliot, who was the president of Harvard at the turn of the century, is a figure whom is early to the idea that the low status of teaching is a huge problem. And he's also no feminist. <laughs> he really believes that women are not smart and strong enough to do this difficult job. And his main concern is paying teachers more so that more men will do the job. And he's out there making an argument for what today we would call teacher professionalism, this idea that it can't be something you do for a couple years. It's got to be a career. Teachers need labor protections. Teachers need higher pay you know, we need to respect this. But at the same time, he has this kind of sexist undercurrent, which would not really be acceptable in the public discourse today. You know, he even makes claims like, you know, during menstruation, women are not able to teach and other things that sound, you know, fairly absurd to us now. One of the things that happens in the early 1900s is an idea that we need to evaluate teachers better. We need to figure out a way to assess whether teachers are going to do a good job or even to figure out who should be a teacher. So we start talking a lot about tests. We talk about that a lot today. What was going on in the early 20th century? This was one of the light bulb eureka moments in researching and writing this book. We talk today about value-added measurement, which is this tool that economists have developed for taking kids' test scores and using them to judge teachers. We talk about it as one of the newest things that's happening. You know, it was developed in the late 90s. We're getting really good at it now, and everyone's excited about it and debating it. I found that in the 1920s and 30s, we had essentially the exact same thing. It was called the pupil change method. So the terminology was different, but um, the actual process was quite similar. You look at the child's test score at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year, and whether they make above or below average gains, and you just judge the teacher using that. So this early version of using test scores to evaluate teachers, what happened to it? It died out relatively quickly, in part because unions were vociferously opposed and effectively organized against it. You know, teachers resisted this because they said so much impacts the child's test score other than what I'm doing in the classroom. This is not fair. And actually, peer reviewers at the time within academia who were looking at this pupil change method, you know, they made the exact same point. They were saying, look, we're seeing three percentage points difference between an average and the most effective teacher. That's what they said back then in the 30s. Three points is really not a lot. So is this worth all the effort? Is this worth the political stamina that has to go into pushing these things past unions? Um, so, so that's what happened to it back then. And, and I think now this idea of value-added measurement has become more rooted. And I think it it is with us <laughs> for a while, probably. But I think that the question is, how exactly will we use this new tool? One of the ideas that starts to take hold pretty strongly is that education, and in particular teachers, can really solve social problems, in particular can make our country a more equal place, can bring equality. 
and, and teachers themselves, this idea that teachers are the most important part of that equation. Where does that come from and how did that play out in the earlier parts of the century? Well, with the muckraking journalists, you know, they're out in the slums of New York City and Chicago, and they're seeing kids who have essentially never been to school. Um, they're immigrant kids, they're truant from school, maybe they're working on a factory floor, they're hawking newspapers on the street corners. And Jacob Reese is one of the many muckraking journalists who sees the failures of schools as responsible you know, in large part for correcting this, even as they acknowledge we have no safe housing laws in New York City at the time. You know, there's no welfare programs to speak of. There is no social safety net in the in the progressive era. You know, the country was just in the process of beginning to debate and build what becomes even the relatively weak social safety net that we have now. And yet Jacob Reese writes, the influence of the teacher is the most important thing on this ragamuffin truant child. And other muckraking journalists go into schools at that time and they see very rote lessons that appear very boring. And they say, you know, of course the kids don't want to be in school. Of course the kids are truant. What often get left out of the media conversation that happens in the progressive era is the fact that there were 60, sometimes 70 kids in these urban classrooms. So why is the teacher doing a boring rote lesson? Why is the school not particularly concerned about truancy? Well, the overcrowding even of the kids that's there is just astounding. And so without the budget to bring class sizes down, teachers are saying, there's not much I can do about all these other kids that are not even here. That was author Dana Goldstein talking with education correspondent Emily Hanford. Next week on the podcast, we'll feature more of the interview about Goldstein's book, The Teacher Wars starting with The Great Society and ending with some of Goldstein's thoughts about the role of standardized testing and how to help today's teachers improve. A note of disclosure, Goldstein was awarded a fellowship by the Spencer Foundation, which also helps support American Radio Works but does not influence our coverage. You can find more podcasts about teaching and other issues in K-12 and higher education at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects and let us know what you think of our coverage. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can like us on Facebook at American.RadioWorks, and you can follow us on Twitter at AMRadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works also comes from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.